There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. We live in a world of distractions, noise, not just environmental, external, but from within. Always something to preoccupy our minds, troubles, challenges, concerns, ambitions, desires, self-generated. Peace appears to be a rare commodity, but something everyone would like us or would like to have and is striving to find. Stillness. For centuries, there have been those who have lived lives of quiet contentment, experiencing life as the sum of all of its parts, connected, grounded, from the Buddhists to the Stoics, to name but two approaches, philosophies. There are others within the major religions. But does one need to be an adherent of a specific philosophical approach to find inner peace? Or is there a way to find inner peace as an individual without adopting a specific philosophical approach, but by adopting a way of being? that might contribute to improved emotional health. Could mindfulness be that way? On today's episode, entitled Mindfulness and the Power of Self-Awareness, we are joined by Dr. Ella Brent and Dr. Pete Milligan. Ella is a clinical psychologist based at the Day Clinic in Johannesburg, where she is also a director. She trained in the UK and has a doctorate in clinical psychology from University College London. She has a special interest in the meaningful application of dialectic behavior therapy and the mentalizing-based therapies to address relationship issues, mood disorders, and impulsive behaviors. Pete is a psychiatrist based currently in KwaZulu-Natal and affiliated to the University of KwaZulu-Natal's Department of Psychiatry. He was previously in Cape Town, where he was the clinical head at Falkenberg Hospital. He spent 18 years in the University of Cape Town's Department of Psychiatry and Mental Health, where he was responsible for the postgraduate, that is registrar, training program. He's been involved in mindfulness-based interventions for mental illness for the past 20 years in various therapeutic programs. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he had been involved in providing online mindfulness-based programs for health workers struggling with stress and burnout. He also leads mindfulness wilderness trails in the Imphalosi and the Kruger National Park. I think I'll have to check in on those later. He is currently a director of the Institute for Mindfulness of South Africa. So, Ella and Pete... Welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join us for this episode of Beyond Madness. I feel like uh, maybe we should start the episode with a breathing exercise or some chants. Joking. Uh, but the obvious question to, to, to set the scene is, what is mindfulness? And before you answer the question, I actually, as part of my preparation for, for, for today's episode, I entered the word mindfulness into the Google search bar. And I came up with 648 million results. So, I mean, that's telling us something about the word and its application. So, Ella, I'll start with you and then we'll flip to Pete. Mindfulness, what, is it, what does it mean to you? What is it to you? Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me on to talk about this really important subject. Uh, I think it is important to contextualize my relationship with mindfulness in terms of dialectical behavior therapy specifically. And mindfulness in that context is about being able to influence the direction of your mind. Right. And that is in some ways different from the wider or the content that is less mental health oriented. Right. So mindfulness within mental health would be about feeling that you are more able to guide the focus of your attention rather than this other concept of stilling or quietening the mind. So that's interesting because basically we're saying depending on the application will also – or should I say depending on the context will be influencing how it's applied and how ultimately – or what one is achieved – what is – what one is wanting to achieve. Absolutely. So another really important part of my work and my focus is deciding what your goal is. Right. Before you set off, I think in our busy, impulsive, let's say, to bring that onto the table world, we're very quick to get going Mm. before we've really decided where we want to get to. 
And I think that's a critical concept. I remember a senior colleague and friend, he's a professor of psychiatry in the States, he said something to me once which was very simple. He said, if you know where you want to go, the rest is easy. It's certainly easier. Yes. <laughs> he just said easy, but I think easier is probably right. Pete, I'm going to flip to you and, and, and mindfulness and, and, and your thoughts about what is mindfulness and, and how you would explain it to someone. Thank you. And thank you for having me on this, on this show. Um, I'm going to go with uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition. And John was the physician largely responsible for bringing secular mindfulness into medicine and um, more broadly into medical health care. Um, and John's definition is mindfulness is paying attention. So Alice mentioned attention already mm. on purpose. So there's an intentionality about it in the moment, which is here and now. Right. And lastly, without judgment, mm-hmm. learning to just be with what is here. Right. So, I mean, that is not straightforward. The way in which you've put it is very nice. It's very kind of point bullet form. There's an explanation of each point. But when you try to put that all together simultaneously, literally in the moment, there's a hell of a lot that goes into that. And certainly that's something that I'm going to come to, which is, which is the discipline of being mindful, because I think it is a discipline, actually. And you don't have to answer me or agree or disagree because we're going to come to that. But I just wanted to put that out there. My question is, where does it come from? Because mindfulness is not something which just you know, emerged. It's got some kind of theoretical or philosophical underpinning. So, Peter, I'm going to stick with you and then I'm going to flip to, 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 to Ella. Where does, where does it come from? Yeah, the, the origins are, are largely Buddhist. Right. Um, but in fact, much more broadly in Eastern spiritual traditions. So right back to uh, early Vedanta practice, um, and then and then Buddhist practice. And I mentioned Jodhkar Kabat-Zinn earlier, but there are many other Western teachers right. who have brought these practices into, uh, if you like, the Western world. Mm. But, of course, there are contemplative traditions in all the great spiritual traditions, so not just limited to the East. So you'll find threads of mindfulness, in fact, in some of the Judeo-Christian traditions, for example, uh, some of the Islamic traditions. Um, So it's not exclusively Eastern. Right. But it's interesting how we're seeing East and West come together where we're almost, I don't want to call it cultural appropriation because I don't think that's what it is, but to some extent we're incorporating Eastern philosophies or Eastern approaches into Western life, and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily because I think there's obviously a lot to to recommend it. Ella, your your understandings of, of the origins? Well, perhaps I can respond to your last comment first yes. and then come back to the origins because Perfect. in terms of a dialectical approach, yes. it is not the clearest term. So I think this is a very good opportunity just to say something about a dialectical approach, whether it's embedded in the therapy treatment DBT or not, or this wider balancing act between what may feel like opposing um, drives Mm -hmm. of accepting things as they are, and also wanting to achieve an outcome that is different. Because although the focus is on a non-judgmental stance, which I absolutely agree is at the core of this approach. We are doing it in order to get a different outcome. And that sounds contradictory. And uh, in some ways, one might say it is contradictory. And yet it is the heart of what we're trying to do. We're trying to accept things as they are, with a hope that it will create some different experience. And a dialectical stance is in balancing these two opposing forces. So the origins of mindfulness in incorporating both Eastern and Western philosophies really is certainly the starting point for Marsha Linehan, the developer of DBT's approach. That's exactly what she set out to do in a very intentional way. That perhaps overgeneralizing, she brought from 
Eastern philosophy, the uh, profoundly unfamiliar sense of acceptance of current reality with our more Western drive for change and action and problem solving and combine the two in a way that could complement rather than insist on choice between them. Right. And I'm thinking that if there's acceptance, there is a certain calm. And if there is a calm, then there is a possibility of thinking differently exactly. and therefore change. Exactly. So I can see how what appear to be two contradictory forces coming together actually are very complementary and contribute to a, a, a much better outcome. Well, we may not say better because we're trying to stay within our non-judgmental <laughs> right. stance, which okay. <laughs> is infuses. Different. Well, I think useful. That's useful. certainly okay. the emphasis that we're moving from judging and appraising right. to recognize what we might be able to make use of. And I think that's very important because, I mean, we are always generally instinctively thinking of what would be better. So we're always kind of in that context thinking that what we've got is inferior, whereas in what we have may not be. And it's certainly may make sense in our current moment. Right. And yet in the future, something else might be more useful. Absolutely. Pete? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I think that's right. Um, I think that um, it, it, it really is about learning to decenter. Uh, to use another word, perhaps um, moving, if you like, from the subjective to the objective, learning right. to observe. And in, in so doing, um, we build the capacity for reflective function and we buy, in a sense, the kind of breathing space that helps us to negotiate some of the difficulties of life in a, in a more effective way than simply reacting automatically as we might have done without a more mindful um, approach. Yeah, I think that's very profound. But th the next question I have is, I mean, I mentioned that I entered mindfulness into the Google, you know, search bar, coming up with 648 million results. And the suggestion is mindfulness has become like a buzzword. You know, it's like all over the place. Mm. And it always concerns me when we are getting its sort of general usage, it's finding its way into, you know, common parlance. And I suppose what concerns me is that something that is quite profound becomes diluted as a consequence. So how has it come to be such a buzzword? I mean, what is, is it, is it, is it fashion or is it actually representing a movement towards something more profound in a way? Ella? Um, in a way, I think this um, does come back to perhaps this other origin of mindfulness that Pete talked about the origins in Buddhism and Eastern philosophies. And I, I think the other aspect I had in mind, mm. speaking as a psychologist, is the specific area of mindfulness that we might say is keeping the mind in mind, not just an increased awareness of our surroundings and context, but being more, as Pete said, self-reflective is a very important component. And I wonder whether it has become more in our awareness where perhaps we have begun to lack some of the interest in our minds. Right. Uh, that in a way, in thinking about our conversation today, what I was aware of is that the increased use of um, iPads for children and mm. teens, um, that a huge amount of time is spent looking at a non-responsive image right. rather than engaging primarily and not to over-idealize <laughs> the past and certainly yes. recognizing the value of technology. However, the shift in relating to a non-responsive image of people mm. rather than being embedded in an interpersonal relationship may mean that there has been a fall off of mm. this interpersonal and that the emphasis on mindfulness is rebalancing some of that. I like that because it also speaks to something that I've been discussing recently in an episode that looked at emotional health in the workplace and this movement towards working online, alone, 
at home. And of course, you're just responding to a screen. Okay. So there's maybe more interaction, but this move away from the interpersonal, the sense of community, the sense of belonging and that kind of interactive energy that is now missing. Pete, your thoughts on that? Yes, I think that's right. I, I want to just go back to your question about the kind of popular view yes. of mindfulness. And, uh, you know, I remember probably 10, 15 years ago, it was on the front cover of Time magazine and uh, people referred to things like Mac mindfulness. Yes. Uh, there are many, <laughs> many, many offerings out there. Um, and I think like anything, it has it has obviously become very mainstream. Um, but I think uh, my particular interest lies in in the mental health applications. And yes. I think like all things in, in medicine, we ultimately have to resort to evidence-based approaches. Right. So I think we need to distinguish between the sort of global popularity of mindfulness and actually looking at the evidence and say, well, does this work or doesn't this work? Right. In, in clinical practice. And, and I think when we look at that, um, I think there is evidence in certain areas, um, but not in all areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's a panacea. And I also hope that we can say a word or two at some point about some of the negative effects. Absolutely, we will get there. <laughs> um, uh, it's like all things. It's not without complications. So um, definitely not Mac Mindfulness. No, no, absolutely. And that's the title of a book, which I'm going to mention later. <laughs> as a, <laughs> a more considered approach. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think what's important is, is that there are clinical applications, but I think as with everything in the clinical setting, it's got to be appropriate for the patient and it's got to be appropriate for the situation. So you can't simply say, well, mindfulness is good, therefore it's good for everyone. And I, I, I think that there are times and timing and patience and I think there are pathologies that are better suited potentially to, to, to mindfulness approaches. And I was thinking more specifically, Ella, in terms of personality. And I'm thinking about the more impulsive, self-destructively orientated personality with emotional uh, 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 instability, those kinds of individuals for whom mindfulness may be particularly helpful. And I think specifically where dialectic behavior therapy has been applied. And here I'm talking, for those who don't know, I'm talking more about the borderline personality structure. It's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, number five. You'll find it there. I'm not going to get into a, a detailed description, but I've given you some of the key features. So what would your response be to that? So firstly, I think that um, to balance the... Uh, association with borderline personality disorder only to um, a diagnostic manual. I think that um, the understanding that what people present with in terms of impulsive behaviour or unstable senses of self, we might say, that has been given the label borderline personality disorder may well be more usefully understood as complex mm. post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. And I know that's probably a, a very useful whole other <laughs> yes. um, conversation and a, a podcast for the future. Yes. I do say that, though, because for a very good reason that um, our understanding of impulsivity as being part of a disturbance mm. of relationships right. as the reason why people may in adulthood present with unstable behavior or impulsive behavior that looks very self-destructive but may in fact be an attempt to manage feelings inside Mm. that can't be held inside yes um and so this relates to your question in that the way mindfulness developed and is more traditionally thought of in terms of meditation and stilling the mind tends to not be suited for people who find it very difficult on any level to experience feelings internally. Mm-hmm. One might usefully understand impulsive behavior as doing feelings rather than feeling feelings. Right. That if we understand that those impulsive behaviors rather than being 
intended to be self-destructive are a way of having a feeling if you can't feel it as a feeling state. Yes. Then mindfulness is very useful in understanding, again, coming back to where we started, our goal. What is the goal? Yes. It isn't simply let's do some mindfulness. Mm -hmm. What are we wanting the mindfulness to help? Yeah. And I think it's very helpful if we're very clear. What we want to do is teach people how to have a feeling and allow it or keep it as a feeling state rather than having to do it in the world. Right. So it kind of gets, it kind of prevents the acting out, which could be self-destructive. It, I wouldn't say prevents the acting out. It lessens lessens. the pressure to act. It's, if you think about it in quite mechanistic terms, Mm. some way that as non-psychologists can be more relatable is a a kind of sense that inside us, we have a potential energy, a kind of revved up feeling, and that that potential energy is converted into the kinetic energy of an action. Yes. When those actions are under too much pressure, the action, the kinetic action, the behavior has too much force. It's all about discharging the energy rather than acting to address the problem you're facing. It's a bit like being stuck at a red traffic light. And then if you've been waiting too long, when the green goes, you stall. Right. You don't take off smoothly yes. because you've been so ready, pent up, up, exactly. So if we can use mindfulness to process and what we might say, turn down the intensity of the feeling, then there's less pressure to act impulsively rather than preventing. Right. You're reducing the pressure and allowing for some thinking to come online right. where you're more likely to be able to, rather than act impulsively, yes. act in ways that might address the problem. So I think this is critical because really what we're talking about are expectations and how you manage expectations in terms of what are we trying to achieve and realistically what are we likely to achieve and that in fact the result that you're talking about, which is simply to lessen rather than prevent, is already a success in that sense without judging it. But It's it's it, very useful. It's very useful, exactly. So You'll I'm all be, be saying that by I'm the be, end of this. I'm, oh, becoming, I'm becoming more mindful. <laughs> <laughs> so Pete, I mean, obviously Ella's speaking as a psychologist you as a psychiatrist in terms of your clinical application of mindfulness, where where have you seen it helpful? Hmm. Well, interestingly, I also started in DBT um, about about 20 years ago. Right. Um, and there are a couple of other so-called third wave or mindfulness-based therapies, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy being another one. Um, but when one looks at the evidence for um, mental health, mental disorders other than personality disorder, mm. um, probably the most profound evidence is in the area of depression. And interestingly, okay. it's not so much about the treatment of acute depression, but it's about relapse prevention. Uh-huh. And I think we can understand that because you can understand that the relapse in depression is a kind of downward spiral of negative thinking. Mm. And if I can learn to be a little bit mindful and begin to see the negative thoughts simply as thoughts and not allowing them to hook me into a downward emotional spiral, I have the potential to um, prevent depression. Right. So that's, that's been the most profound in, um, evidence. But, of course, the same applies in most of the anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Almost all the anxiety disorders have, have anxious cognition, uh, anticipatory anxiety, and, again, a mindful space that allows one to just um, observe what is happening without, as Ella is saying, needing to storm off at the, at the traffic light. Yes. Um, so, is so, enormously helpful. So I think we're talking about moving from reaction to response. So we're not just reacting, boom, in the split second. We're kind of observing, we're understanding, and we're, we're, we're working towards something that is more appropriate. I was going to use the word. See, I've got a new word now. I've well, gone, I've gone I beyond would useful. I with useful. Useful. I think okay. appropriate is still a judgment. It's appropriate okay. for whom? And 
that implies that something was not appropriate. And it before. also um, has a sense that what you're working towards is good behavior or being less of a problem to other people, which right. is really not what it's about. And that's yeah. quite a, a profound shift yes. because for people who particularly have come from uh, traumatic starts, yeah. they really have a very significant experience of invalidation. Mm-hmm. So that when we're even thinking about more appropriate behavior, we are invalidating. Well, there's a judgment implied in that. Exactly, exactly. So, I'd stick with useful. Yes, no, I think so. I think you're, you're, you're slowly but surely convincing me. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to write it down. It's going to be my new mantra. Useful. So, okay. So, I mean, we've, we've covered clinical to some extent, but obviously, uh, Pete, when you go on your walks through the Umphalosia and, and, and the Kruger National Park, I'm not sure that you're taking psychiatric patients with you. I would suspect that you are taking non-psychiatric patients, and I'm getting a sense that this might be more about leadership uh, and mindfulness in the workplace, or would I be wrong? Yes, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> funny enough, I think I've had more psychiatrists than patients okay. <laughs> on these trails. Um, but yeah, I mean, just briefly, uh, of course, um, I believe we, the wilderness is our evolutionary adapted environment. So mm-hmm. this is where we evolved as Homo sapiens. And, and what the wilderness does without having to sit on a meditation cushion and and get cramp and backache and all of those Mm. things is it just brings us to our senses because you can't survive in the wilderness without being totally tuned into your senses. And it's remarkable how walking in Big Five territory brings us immediately into a sense of presence. Right. And, And that's why we love doing these trips because... Um, it's kind of mindfulness made it made easy, um, but I also like to think uh, it's mindfulness in our evolutionary adapted environment, which I think is quite special. And I'm 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 guessing that maybe you don't have a game ranger who's armed to kind of dull the senses to lure you into a sense of of, of safety because somebody's taking care of it and you can just enjoy the view for what it is. Oh oh, oh no, we definitely do. You know? Okay. It's it's like a, a set of double brackets. The, the 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 rangers are managing the interface between us, right, and 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 the wild animals, and we facilitate a process within that um, safe framework. Well, I must say, I was I was recently in the Pilansberg, and and there was a dinner which was held out in the open, and you know we were kind of enjoying it, and it just felt like, well, we're okay. But it is a big five area. And while we were busy eating, a gentleman sort of gently sidled up and I saw he was armed and I'd never seen him. I thought, who is this guy? And he just said, good evening. I'm your, uh, I'm your security. I'm the one who's watching out for you while we were all being completely not mindful and just, well, maybe we were. We were just getting into the moment of, of eating and enjoying the company without any consciousness of the fact that actually, and as he said to me, he said, they're all just walking past. They're all around, you know, but. We're here for that, for that purpose, but I deviate. So, so obviously, I mean, leadership and mindfulness does, does go hand in hand, Pete. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a corporate uh, component to mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one, one could talk about it as a, as a kind of a life skill. Right. So in a generic sense, mindfulness is helpful whether you're in, in leadership or not. For the same reasons that we've described earlier, mm. so the ability to build reflective function, um, to to act wisely instead of compulsively or um, automatically, um, is is incredibly useful. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I think it's applicable um, at all levels yes. within, within the workplace. And I was. Because uh, I, I, I was just looking at some of the benefits, and I mean, they speak about improved self-control, which I think is very important, better able to deal with problems more calmly, which I think is important, reduced emotional reactivity, um, improved mental flexibility, improved concentration, improved memory. I'm seeing a lot of benefits which go beyond the clinical situation and actually extend into life in general, not just the corporate sector, but just in general. That's what I'm understanding. Yes, yes. And of course, that takes us to, to the whole issue about mindfulness and stress management. Right. Um, so, 
a lot of the mindfulness work outside of the mental health context more broadly has been around stress reduction. So John Kabat-Zinn's original eight-week course from which most of the of the current mindfulness-based um, group-based programs are based was an eight-week program called MBSR or Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Right. Um, so it's kind of been sold at that level. Mm-hmm. And so many people come at it from that perspective. So essentially come to it because they're recognizing their own stress, their own burnout, um, and their own need for some tools yes. to improve self-regulation. Right. Um, so I think, so they, I think the operative word you mentioned there is tools because I wanted to actually – sorry if I jumped in there, Prim, just finish what you were saying, and then I'm going to come in with a question. No, no I think, I, I think as I was saying, just – just a tool for um, for for self regulation. Um, I think most people come to mindfulness uh, through 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 that route, right? Rather than necessarily because of profound mental illness. So, the follow up question for me, when you mentioned the word tools, which was just convenient, was how is it taught? Because for me, it seems like it's something that is taught actually. So maybe Ella and then Pete, just to. So I, I, I'm not sure if that's where you're coming from, but certainly I think Pete might be more along those lines. And um, I wonder, it may be that Pete has a more global um, context. Ours is very specific and really has come as a response yes. to more traditional right. tools. So I don't know whether it would make more sense <laughs> well, coming think, after Pete because yes. it has been an adaption of yes. mindfulness that has been used in DBT. Well, the question is the same, really. How is it taught? Because for me, I, I think it's something that you, you, you learn, but somebody has to teach you. And so how is it taught, actually? How do you, how, what, what is the sort of, is there a step-by-step process? How, do, how does it work? Yeah, so I mean, it can be taught both in 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 group based teaching or in individual process. Right. Um, in the in the kind of classic mindfulness based stress reduction group, uh, there's an eight week program, um, two hours a week, and in the two hours, um, various meditation practices are taught. So there's uh, a link to meditation. Because that was going to be one of my next questions. Very definitely. Right. Um, and and very broadly, the practices involve uh, quite a lot of body awareness work. So body scan and yoga or mindful movement. And then various forms of meditation practice. Right. Uh, specifically uh, awareness of breath meditation but then learning to broaden one's awareness to include sounds, sights, and of course thoughts and in, and and emotional states as well. Um, and it's taught, um, as I said, two hours a week, and then there are a set of taped practices right. that are given to participants to work with on a daily basis for the week, and then... Uh, there's a check in the next week and new practices are introduced. So this requires a level of commitment because, I mean, I'm understanding there's a lot of homework, so to speak, that takes place outside of the two hours. It's It's got to be much more than that. Yes. I mean, look, it's max, I think, 45 minutes a day. Right. Um In, 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 the, in the day-to-day practice, just using a, a recorded um, a tape. So um, it's guided. It's guided meditation, yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, so it sounds like it's very physical. There's a very strong physical component and then also a requirement to specifically think about one's thoughts and to experience one's emotions and you, you're kind of putting all of that together? Yes. Not so much to think about one's thoughts. Right. But just to be aware of them. Right. I mean, for some people, this is mind blowing that I can actually just sit back yes. and notice my own thoughts. Yes. It's like a light bulb for, for some. Well, you can see already. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying you think about your thoughts and you're saying, no, you just observe your thoughts. They just are. You don't mm. have to think about them. Just observe mm. them. And I mm. think that that's, you know. I'm getting into observation. I'm getting into useful. You know, my whole language and my whole uh, 
position is 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 changing. Um, the, the the issue of, of of mindfulness. Oh, Lila. I was just going to follow up on the way that um, that um, approach to teaching mindfulness yes. has been adapted for what you refer to right. as as um, psychiatric right. or dysregulated populations. Okay, uh, and I think that at the coming back to the goal, the goal is the same. So it isn't a separate right. stream. What Marsha Linehan, the originator of dialectical behavior therapy observed was that in practice, despite it being very useful to approach one's mind in the way that Pete has described, that the subjective experience of it can be particularly unpleasant and mm. very aversive right. for some people. And that, that some people might overlap. It may not be all people with mental health problems, but there's an overlap between people with mental health problems, particularly people, as I've mentioned, with complex uh, PTSD or right. what might be termed as uh, personality disorders, right. that the stillness, mm -hmm. the protected time that was in, uh, inherent in the original um, teaching and mindfulness really does dysregulate through the lack of distraction, the yeah. lack of action in the world yeah. uh, to a level that really is very unpleasant. Yes. And although that unpleasantness doesn't mean it's harmful, it was often read internally that way. Yes. So for all people, the implosion of distraction in the mind is part of the process. Right. So it's not that that doesn't happen to everybody, that sure. when in the stillness your mind goes mad... If you can tolerate that, yeah. that's what you're observing. Yes. But we also have to be realistic about whether people who we want to benefit from these approaches can tolerate it. And yeah. I think that I feel very strongly when I talk, you mentioned about the meaningful application. Yes. Just talking about what would work if you could do it mm. may be true. Mm. If you can't do it because it's so aversive, it's not going to help you. Right. And so what Marsha Linehan did, she was herself a... Zen Buddhist master. So okay. she took very seriously the traditional approach to mindfulness and went really to a, a Zen master level. And then she very, very insightfully broke that down into more active ways to achieve similar ends. Mm. Because what she realized was that if you could um, increase the observation, right. the awareness, all the things that Pete's spoken about, mm. but without the unstructured and uh, quietness, then people might be able to persevere. So she broke it down into three steps, right. uh, what she calls the what to do skills, okay. uh, which are to observe, mm -hmm. that is to notice, but not requiring not being active, that you can notice it's very much, as Pete was talking about, his walks. That would be very much walking rather than a more traditional idea of meditating, sitting, sitting down. Right. That the walking enables you to um, be occupied with your observation. Got it. Uh, and then to, as a second stage, describe, which is using words non-judgmentally yes. and without change, but using language and words to articulate what you've observed. And the reason for that, again, always keeping in mind the goal, is to help have this as an inside experience. So mm. the idea is to take the pressure off having to reactively act, yes. that you use the words to mediate okay. the pressure to do something. And then the third step of these three being to participate, but to participate in this way of being in the moment. So all the things that Pete's talked about, but in a slightly more structured way does help some people tolerate the level of discomfort that can be aroused in a less structured experience of meditation. Right. So what I'm understanding at one level is that silence can be very unsettling. Yes. And body scans in particular right. seem to really, uh, for some people, for some people create a very disturbing and aversive experience. So body scans, Pete, did you mention body scans? Yes, I did. Can you um, just elaborate on that? Because Ella's just used the term and I just need to be yeah. clear. And, and I'm glad that Ella's raised this because I, I agree with her completely. So just very briefly, a yes. body scan is simply uh, an exercise in body awareness mm. where one directs attention through the body 
in a progressive way. Okay. Learning to just be with whatever the, the, the senses are at the time in the body. But um, Ella, Ella raises an important point, and, and, you know, we perhaps need to talk a little bit about sure. the, side, the side effects of mindfulness, because yes. particularly in people who've been traumatized. Right. Um, body awareness can be very triggering. Mm. Um, and this is why I think Marsha Linehan and Dialectical Behavioral Therapy broke it down. Yeah. Um, and I found when I was running a therapeutic program in Cape Town uh, some years ago that even a one or two minute meditation exercise could be triggering for someone who is highly traumatized. Right. And so one needs to do this in a much more controlled and piecemeal fashion. Um, but um, there's a progression to it. Yes. And and people who may not be even able to close their eyes um, may gradually learn um, to increase their awareness to a point where they can they can tolerate more of what's happening. I think it's it's difficult for people to potentially contemplate what you're just saying, which is like for two minutes. That two minutes of silence can be triggering, but actually Two minutes can be a very long time. I remember there was a program on BBC in the old days when we used to listen to the radio. I think it was called Just a Minute, where you mm. had to speak for one minute unrehearsed on a topic without mm. hesitating, without repeating, and a minute was an awfully long time. So, you know, you say, well, you know, can't tolerate two minutes, but two minutes is a long time. But it's incredible to think that for some people that is triggering. Yes. And yes. that can really precipitate intense discomfort just trying to be silent for two minutes. Yes, yes. And I think there are many inexperienced mindfulness teachers who've been caught out Yeah, um, going into this with patients, particularly, as I say, with trauma histories, and suddenly finding that um, they, they're inadvertently triggering a whole lot of negative re-experiencing. You know what I'm thinking now? You know, the use of the word is so commonplace. But once you actually start to – I'm going to use a – cliche, drill down into what mindfulness actually is and listening to everything that you, Pete and Ella are saying, this is a process that has to be very carefully managed. That's the sense I'm getting and that you don't just plunge into it. You need to be appropriately, first of all, selected because I think it works for some people and not for others. It's a question of readiness to actually engage and taking the person almost like walking with them through this process, which means that the person who is um, supervising, let's, let's, let's use that term loosely, the process themselves has to be very, very sensitive to who they're dealing with, what is going on, and very responsive to the possibility that this may not work and cause something a little bit more catastrophic emotionally for the individual. So this is much more complicated than the word would suggest and if one just has a very superficial understanding of mindfulness just just be quiet and everything will be fine and actually it's not like that it's much more complex and I think that one just has to have a, a, a really deep awareness and understanding so you know that's my take based on what I'm hearing I don't know Ella, Pete mm-hmm. Well, I think we want to respect the complexities of the mind. Right. And so if mindfulness is a focus on one's mind, yes. then I think one has to be respectful and thoughtful about um, that uh, uh, complex state. Yeah. You see, I think that it's an intervention, and one must never forget, certainly in medicine, be the same in psychology, every intervention has benefits, but it has risks. And I think we're starting to tap into some of the potential risks, which may not be apparent at the outset. Because, you know, people often say, well, you know, mindfulness being in the moment. Yes, there's being in the moment, but this is much more than that. That's my understanding. Pete? Yes, and I think also um, we need to recognize that there are other ways of approaching this in a more grounded way. So for those who are not able to tolerate sitting on a meditation cushion, yeah. Um, there are other more physical ways to become present. I mean, we've mentioned walking and walking in the wilderness, but um, I know you're a, you're a runner, Chris. Yes. Right? 
<laughs> running, running does this for, for many people. One of the very useful things we found, particularly working with adolescents, is drumming. So drumming okay. is wonderful because it's very physical and it keeps you very grounded in the moment, in the sound. And though, so there are many ways to this. Um, other than just, as I say, sitting on a meditation cushion in silence. So, you know, I wanted to touch on what I would call accessories to mindfulness. So I'm thinking about, okay, you know, you don't simply acquire better mental health through this. There are other aspects. And now you've touched on it, Pete, the, the physical. So obviously exercise, diet. And then earlier you mentioned yoga. Because I would have seen that yoga and mindfulness are very complementary. I also do yoga, by the way, every now and again. <laughs> so I, I would say they're very complementary. I mean, in terms of a mindfulness program, would it incorporate these other elements as part of that program? Well, well certainly the, the mindful movement and the yoga. So, of course, in the Eastern traditions, yoga was really a preparation to meditation. So uh-huh. getting in touch with the body um, as a means to ultimately still the mind. Um, so mindful movement is, is really helpful. And again, it doesn't have to be complex yoga. It's very simple. Um, we often use Hatha yoga type practices, which are very, very short, very simple and accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those are definitely helpful. Um, Exercise, as we always say in psychiatry, if we could bottle exercise, the best antidepressant we know. The pharmaceutical industry might not be happy unless they could bottle it (laughs) and manufacture it. Um, But there's undoubtedly something also about the repetitive nature of of running, for example, the the feeling of the feet on on the road. Um, Swimming does the same thing that I think is, is, is very therapeutic. So all of these body awareness practices, whether yeah. we do them intentionally or perhaps relatively unintentionally, I think are tremendously helpful. So the question I have is that, is it realistic? Because again, we come back to what Ella was saying about what is your intention? What is your goal? And I think this idea that we can be at peace the whole time in a constant state of, of peacefulness, is that realistic or is that unrealistic? I think from the conversation we can hear, it isn't really about achieving peacefulness. Okay. It may be about slowing down. Okay. Um, slowing down um, and focusing on one's um, current situation yeah. in an attempt to slow down, um, whether it's the rapid state of life in a more um, wider population or slowing down so one isn't acting so impulsively in a more clinical population. Mm. I think slowing down might capture it for me more than peacefulness. peacefulness. I like peacefulness. I like peace. I like tranquility, stillness. And so uh, that's why the question came to mind. Is it possible to, to, to have that? And I think for some people, they do exist like that. And so the question for me is, for, for some people, is mindfulness more inherent as opposed to others for whom it's completely alien? Are there people out there who are just naturally more mindful and inclined towards living lives without being taught or, or managed in a way, just living lives that are more thoughtful, reflective, and ultimately peaceful? Pete? I, I, I think so. Um, I, I think that there are kind of mindful traits um, and, and people who, who are more naturally mindful. Having said that, as we've said all along, um, this is a practice that can be can be learnt. Right. Um, like like Ella, I I'm not a believer in complete permanent transcendence, and that uh, we can reach a, a, a perfect state of yes. mindfulness. But I think there is a progression. So I mentioned mm. earlier that most people come to mindfulness because they're looking for some type of self-regulation. They're dealing with difficult emotion or stress or whatever it is. I think the next level is, is, is self-awareness. And I think that is also generally accessible. So as I become more mindful, 
I become more self-aware. I learn to notice my body and what's going on. I learn to notice my thoughts and so on. So I think that is generically possible. There may be moments of self-transcendence, which mm. is the, the, the ultimate level. Yes. Um, but I think it's only the very rare few who attain that on any kind of permanent uh, basis. Yes, it's an ideal, but we shouldn't necessarily expect that we're going to get there. So, I mean, contemporary life, there's a lot made about multitasking, you know. To be effective, you've got to be able to multitask. And, 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 and so we have this kind of push within society to be able to do lots of different things simultaneously to be more effective. And, and, and so the question is whether mindfulness is kind of like the antithesis of that. Ella? Um, I do think that's an enormous pressure to multitask. I've noticed it myself where I feel if I'm only doing one thing at a time, I'm really wasting time. Yes. And I, I don't think that's accurate. And it's very judgmental. Um, <laughs> I, I can see that there is a real conflict, um, in feeling that I should yeah. be multitasking. I'm not very good at it, even when I try. And actually, I think that your, you, your use of the word effective is mm. an important one. I mentioned these three what to do skills. Right. There's a, a matching set of how to do it. We've already talked about being non-judgmental. That's one. We've talked a lot about, um, being present in the moment, being one mindful. That's the other. The third is using that exact word effectiveness. Right. And you meant it in terms of getting as much done as you possibly yes, can. Yes, of course. And it is meant in these house skills in the opposite way, which right. is doing something. So it actually achieves what you intend it to do right. rather than what it should achieve. Right. So doing more things um, than one at a time is because we hope it will achieve more. Um, there's a lot of research. I know we don't have time to go yes. into it now, but there is a lot of research that suggests because of the illusion of our working memory, because our working memory holds information where we can manipulate it, it's separate from it being embedded. Right. We're often under the illusion that we are managing to multitask because we are fulfilling short-term tasks. Right. And yet what's happening is, and there is research to, to back this up, that the experiences aren't being encoded. And so the other thing we haven't actually talked about at all is a sense of emptiness that is quite pervasive in mm. our culture, which is very linked, I think, to the way that being present is an antidote, an antithesis to emptiness. Yes. And it may be that this multitasking that keeps us feeling both so busy mm. and yet rather empty at mm. the end of the day um, is, to, is to do with the busyness not actually being Fulfilling, right? And I think that mindfulness is an antidote to okay. that, or a treatment. Even. So you've, you've answered my question. So we've given a lot of focus to the individual, but the individual lives within a system, and so we're talking about how the individual copes within the system. I'm going to quote uh, Krishna Murti. In fact, I have a T-shirt which says "No Mal." The mal that's John Parker. Who sold those t-shirts On the back of the t-shirt Krishnamurti is quoted as saying It is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society And so the question for me is We're talking about individual responses But we're talking about a system And so the focus is on the individual But what about the system? I know that's a huge question Pete, what are your thoughts on that? Christopher, I'm so glad you've raised this Because I think that managers around the world have seized upon mindfulness as saying, this is a good thing for our employees. Um, stress and burnout, um, we need to do more. And we ignore the kind of systems failures that yes. lead to stress and burnout. I remember going to a workshop with one of the heads of health, I won't name the province, where after a whole day, uh, the conclusion was that there were two problems in the system. One was systems failure and the other was health workers stress and burnout, but nobody connected the two. <laughs> Maybe the health workers are burnt out because the systems are failing. And I don't know if you know Alistair McAlpine. He's a pediatric oncologist. In I know Canada. the name. Yes. He writes some lovely blogs, but he, he said this. He said, forget resilience training, just fix the system. Um, and there is a truth in that. But yes. My, my view as someone who has worked in 
various managerial roles in the in the health sector is that we have to do both. Yeah. So I think we've got to both work for systems improvement and become advocates for systemic change. But I do think that the mindfulness skills are incredibly useful. Right. And they're not an antidote. No, no, no. It's failure. That's well, very important. Well, I think that we're talking about the fact that we do have a responsibility for ourselves. We can't just look to the system. But as much as we have a responsibility for managing ourselves, we also have a responsibility to look at systems because we're part of the system and how we effect change in the system. A, a question. We've spoken about side effects of mindfulness. Some people have spoken about the downside of mindfulness contributing to selfishness and egotism because it's all about the self. And there was an interesting study that was looking at the impact of mindfulness on people who are more independent-minded versus those who are interdependent-minded, so Western versus Eastern. And what they found is that mindfulness courses for the different groups of individuals, the more independent-minded became less altruistic, the more interdependent-minded became more altruistic. So there was a suggestion from this piece of research that context influences the direction that mindfulness can take. So I don't know if you've come across that research. I certainly have. And I was curious to, to, to hear what you might have to say. Pete, any thoughts on that? Or just kind of like, wow. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I, I think while, while we've talked about um, mindfulness being useful in terms of managing certain aspects of personality, perhaps particularly um, impulsivity and, and, and reactivity, um, I think that, again, mindfulness is not a panacea. Yeah. So, you know, if one is profoundly narcissistic, it's not necessarily going to shift that narcissism. Right. Um, and people may become very self-absorbed around their own mindfulness. Um, yes. Um, and and very preoccupied. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think it is possible to, yes. to for for it to become uh, r- rather a kind of self indulgent process. Yes, the process that leads us to to to, to greater self awareness. Okay, or, or to other awareness, I should put it, or awareness of the other. Um, but I think that. All of the mindfulness practices, and we haven't talked about this, yes. include um, um, re- coming out of the original Buddhist metta practices, some form of kindfulness or loving kindness, which while it may be self-directed, as which is critically important and helpful, yes. is also other-directed. Okay. So if we include the compassion um, and the loving kindness aspects of mindfulness, I think that that can help us to soften in our relation to others and yes. to become more other-centric or world-centric yeah. rather than self-centric. It's interesting because that ties into Cloninger's kind of three additions to his seven dimensions of personality, the self-directedness, the cooperativeness, and the self-transcendence. I'm going to ask a final question because I see that the World Psychiatric Association is incorporating, incorporating yoga into mental health. And so my question is, is psychiatry turning east? Quick, A quick-fire question to Pete and then to Ella. I think that psychiatry has obviously taken on um, more more Eastern uh, traditions in, in in recent years. Whether it's turning fully East, I don't think so. Right. Um, I think that the so-called third wave of mindfulness-based therapies, the first wave being the behavioral therapies, the second wave being the cognitive behavioral therapies, and the third wave being the mindfulness-based therapies, um, certainly uh, is heavily instant influenced by Eastern tradition. Right. But I don't think that's the whole of psychiatry. Okay. Ella? I think it's all about the and. Right. By incorporating more of one thing, it doesn't yes. mean you have to move away from the other. Absolutely. So we're adding as opposed to shifting Choosing. completely. Yes. So 
come to the end. There are a lot of things that I didn't ask, and there's much more that I could have spoken about, or you would have spoken about. I would have just been the facilitator. But I want to thank both of you, Ella and Pete, for your time, sharing of your knowledge and perspectives on an approach to life, a way of being that I think has got significant implications for emotional well-being, not just for patients, not just for industry, but for people in general. So, okay. I'm going to close with some of my own thoughts, and I'm going to speak about peace. I know that Ella said that maybe it's an idealistic uh, goal. But when I think of mindfulness, I have a sense of a mindful person being one who is totally aware of their external environment and their internal world, how the two relate and interact to produce the end product of how they are in this world, and how to manage themselves perpetually, if not perfectly, to live in peace and harmony through employing the philosophy and techniques of mindfulness without necessarily subscribing to any particular belief system. Maybe I'm being idealistic, but hey, why not? So I'm going to close out with a quote from another idealist and with reference to peace and think carefully about the quoted words to follow because they might relate to you as an individual. And these are the words of the legendary, some might say revolutionary guitarist, Jimi Hendrix. And they are his version of words originally said in the 1800s by the British politician, William Gladstone. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy 